The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. Blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, a global marketing services ecosystem organized to help chief marketing officers in their new roles as builders of communities and content aggregators. Today, I'll be talking about the future of health plans with Charlie Baker, president and CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, a health benefits company serving members in the Northeast United States. Under Charlie's leadership, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare has finished first in the country for five years in a row for clinical effectiveness and member satisfaction. Every year for the past four years, U.S. News and World Report has ranked HPHC as the nation's best health plan. Prior to joining Harvard Pilgrim, Charlie spent eight years in Massachusetts state government. He served as Secretary of Administration and Finance and Secretary of Health and Human Services under Massachusetts Governors Bill Weld and Paul Salucci. He won several awards for his service, including the National Governors Association Distinguished Service Award. Charlie has also made strides in engaging the healthcare industry in social media and next generation communications. He is one of the few senior executives in the healthcare industry to keep a blog on healthcare and health insurance issues at letstalkhealthcare.org. I encourage all our listeners to check it out. Charlie engages in ongoing dialogue with readers on a multitude of healthcare concerns. I'm excited to have him here today. Welcome to Market Edge, Charlie. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Hey, you know, you're one of the few senior executives in the healthcare industry to blog. I'd like to know why you started it, what you've learned, and also, if you could just tell me, you know, we had Paul Levy on last year, and he um, also has a blog. Why is the health industry so reticent to engage in more transparency and open and open dialogue, uh, especially with the uh, advent of the social web. Well, I can tell you, Larry, that the main reason um, I started the blog was literally to try to take some of the namelessness and facelessness out of the health insurance industry. And the thought was that as an industry generally, we haven't done a very good job of um, of engaging a conversation um, about issues that relate to our participation in the healthcare space. And uh, and I also thought it would be a good way to sort of throw stuff out there and see what kind of response we got and, and to maybe even engage in a little um, sort of education along the way in both directions. I'd learn a few things. People who were reading would learn a few things, and, and maybe we'd be um, a little less inclined to just go into our corners and, and crouch. And, uh, and I guess the, you know, I'd say I've learned a couple things. One is it's hard work. Um, I don't post all that often. I post a couple times a week, sometimes three times if um, I really have something to say. Um, I do try to track the comments and respond to those. Um, I do it all myself. I don't have uh, I don't have somebody else blog watching or or writing for me. And uh, and in some days it's kind of a pain in the neck um, <laughs> because it's important that I be there 
the one message I get from my own people is, you know, fresh content really matters, and I keep reminding them i got a day job that involves more than just worrying about the blog. Um, but I would say on balance that, uh, that I'm glad we've done it, and I think it has given us a slightly different face to the communities that we participate with than the ones than the one we had before. Um, as far as some of the other folks in our space are concerned, I, I really think that the big issue for most people, Larry, is control. Um, yeah. you, you really have to be willing to give some of that up to head down this road and to presume that, you know, every time you write something, um, it's just as likely somebody's going to fire back in a way that is going to put your organization in a bad light or, or, or say something you might not want to hear in a, in a public space. But, you know, the downside to that is they'll probably say that anyway, and you're probably better off, um, if you can, using your own, um, your own spot for conversation as a, as a place to put, to put that dialogue forward and to engage the debate. You know, one of the key topics around, you know, when I talk to senior executives, that they do have that control issue. And what we say is, A, just like you pointed out, those conversations are going to happen anyway, so why aren't you just straight up and up front? And the idea of transparency continues to be extremely important. I, uh, your thoughts on the importance of transparency in this day and age? Well, I think in healthcare in particular, it's incredibly important. I mean, healthcare remains one of the more opaque industries um, out there, and it's 18% of, uh, of GDP. Um, but if you really wanted to access the same kind of price and performance information uh, in healthcare that you can access for almost any other product or service you can think of, it's pretty hard to find. And in fact, in many ways, regulatory policy and, and industry practice has, be, has been designed to limit the amount of information, even if it's collected, um, that finds its way into the public domain. I think people were always worried about people misinterpreting the data or doing or making an inappropriate decision if they had it. And, uh, and, and I think, frankly, we sort of need to get past all that and work on the presumption that... Um, more data in the public domain is better than less. Um, we'll get smarter about it collectively, uh, both in terms of how we collect it and distribute it and how we interpret it and use it as we go, and, uh, and that we'll never reach the point where the data is going to be perfect, and we shouldn't use that as a barrier to truly engaging in the discussion. No matter what you think about, you know, the current administration in Washington, there seems to be a move toward more regulation, not less. Do you foresee stricter regulation in the healthcare industry in the next few years, and how do you think that might compromise the, your thoughts on transparency as you, uh, as you communicate with your constituencies? Well, that's actually um, sort of a big – that's just a, a great example of how much trouble we have with the ambivalence and the ambiguity of transparency and disclosure when it comes to healthcare information. Um, we've we've sort of never really been able to figure out um, exactly how we wanted to find this. And HIPAA, which is a federal law that was passed a few years ago, is probably as close as we've ever gotten to that. But the funny thing about HIPAA is, on the one hand, um, we all agree, or we seem to agree, that team-based care is probably a better approach to healthcare services, especially for people battling multiple conditions, which is more and more the case these days, um, than the old way of doing it, which is sort of one doc takes care of everything. That, you know, if you're, if you're managing three or four or five illnesses at once, you're probably seeing a lot of clinicians. Right. Um, and 
we haven't made it easy from a regulatory point of view for the information that's associated with your condition to flow easily and quickly from one place to another in the healthcare system. So people end up basically having to be their own primary source of information about their conditions and their circumstances, which um, in many cases is kind of a um, an odd way to go at it, given that the technology certainly exists to move a lot of that data around a lot more quickly. But we've been so worried about some of the issues associated with confidentiality that I think we've probably sacrificed some opportunities to improve care along the way. I'm so surprised they haven't, you know, they're just the basic wiki technology, even if you had it passworded or secured, seems to me would advance, you know, discussions and, and management of records and of, of information. But, again, like you say, just so much about the privacy uh, issue seems to, to halt the advances of technology. The one thing I would say um, where that hasn't necessarily been a case, Larry, is in, uh, is in um, patient discussions about particular illnesses. Um, some of the most trafficked and most vibrant sites in healthcare on the Internet are sites that involve patients and family members talking to each other about particular conditions and circumstances. That piece well, of this has really taken off, and there are gigantic um, conversations and dialogue going on all over the world um, for people who fall into certain um, illnesses and, and are looking for information on those. And those have turned out to be incredibly um, successful as a, as a place to engage in health dialogue. But it's been much harder to bring the practitioners into those conversations, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, there's one actually in our neck of the woods in Cambridge that was started by two brothers, a, a site called Patients Like Me. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was started when the, the one brother got ALS, and it is just, he's since passed away, but the site has grown just so hugely, and with discussions and, you know, back and forth families, uh, caretakers, and they freely talk and give their, um, you know, their thoughts on side effects, et cetera, et cetera. One thing about sites like that, uh, even though I think they're amazing, there doesn't seem to be a lot of participation from, say, healthcare providers and or doctors or caregivers. Do you think that'll change in the coming years? Uh, I think it probably has to, um, since that will be, in fact, where a lot of the dialogue um, involving patients is going to be taking place. But you're right, so far that hasn't been a place that... Um, the clinical community has really spent a lot of time in. I do know that, you know, interestingly enough, the pharma industry is particularly interested in, in this phenomenon and has spent some time and some money um, trying to develop um, sites for people to engage in conversations about um, particular illnesses and particular treatments, with the theory being that you can collect a lot of information um, supporting sites like that if you give people an opportunity to to talk to you about what's going on with um, with their particular circumstances. You know, it's uh, funny, Forrester uh, said uh, toward the end of last year in one of their studies that the, f uh, the fastest growing uh, group of people using Google or other search engines is 55 and over, and that they're 90% of the time uh, asking questions about health care or specific drugs or et cetera. Does that surprise you at all? No, because... Uh... First of all, that's right smack dab in the middle of the baby boom generation, which tends to be a very demanding crowd to begin with, you know, highly educated and very consumer-centric, and 
I'm always looking for the next new piece of information on whatever it is that they're seeking information on. Um, and the, the second thing, I mean, 55 is not um, is, is is pretty tech savvy at this point. Um, I mean, that's. Um, I, I think one of the things that's going to happen over the course of the next five, ten years uh, is the age at which your internet savvy is going uh, is going to grow um, significantly. I mean, the notion. You know, my parents, for example, are in their 80s. Um, my dad's actually not half bad on the internet. My mom doesn't have much interest in it, um, but they were introduced to it in their 70s and their 60s. Most of the people who are in their 50s now were introduced to the internet when they were in their 40s, and I think the you know the idea that people over the age of 55 aren't going to be all that tech savvy is is going away with every passing year. Yeah, I concur with you. We're going to take a short commercial break right now. Please stand by, and we'll be right back with Charlie Baker, the CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, in just a moment for more of our conversation. Market Edge will continue in just a moment. Friend Finder. Friend Finder. The world's largest online dating network. Featuring over 100 million profiles at hot sites such as Passion.com and FastCupid.com. Represents enormous profit-making opportunities for webmasters just like you. With Friend Finder's ability to geo-target and provide billing solutions in most languages and currencies, you are sure to find our comprehensive network to be a good friend to your wallet. Wallet. Get more traffic-maximizing details now at FriendFinder.com. Are you happy with your landing page performance? Discover how to improve your landing page performance with ConversionCritic.com. Brought to you by Engine Ready. Turn your underperforming landing pages into cost-effective sales-producing machines. Be sure you're not wasting your precious PPC budget. Conversion Critic tools give you the ingredients to create high converting landing pages. You don't have to be an expert to use Engine Ready's Conversion Critic tools, but you'll feel like a landing page pro. Take the guesswork out of increasing your conversion rate. Visit conversioncritic.com and boost your conversion rate for free. That's www.conversioncritic.com. Does your website need a bailout? Looking for a conversion rate stimulus package? Do you need a website improvement to-do list? On Target, a subscription service from FutureNow and Brian Eisenberg monitors your website 24-7, analyzing the actions of every potential customer. It gives you a to-do list. It tells you exactly what to fix and how to fix it so that more of your visitors do what you need them to do. On Target pricing starts at $1,000 a month. See more at futurenowinc.com slash ontarget. I'm Brian Eisenberg, and I approve this message. Search engine marketing formulated for Web 2.0. SEM Synergy. Live broadcast Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel. On WebmasterRadio.fm. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with Charlie Baker, President and CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, talking about the future of health and how the Internet and social media are impacting the work that they're doing. Uh, for the last five years in a row, the HPHC has finished first in the country for clinical effectiveness and member satisfaction. Charlie, uh, before the break, we were talking about, you know, 
the baby boomers starting to Google more, patients really taking up the, uh, the passion of discussion. How about other categories? I was intrigued with a site uh, a couple of years ago that was started called CERMO that is mostly about physicians, and it had a little controversy in that they paid a, a small amount to the physicians to sort of post thoughts on side effects and other things and drugs. What's your view on non-patient uh, uh, sites, uh, especially in the in the in, in the um, doctor area, uh, as as far as the communicating. I think um, I mean Sermo is a really interesting site, and I think in some ways uh, provides a real service to the physician community because it makes it possible um, through those that are participating on it to aggregate information on uh, experience with particular medications for certain kinds of conditions very quickly across a really broad population. And um, I think anybody will tell you that one of the things um, that's always been most difficult about um, about managing medication uh, regimens generally is not necessarily knowing, you know, you know, you do a couple of clinical trials, you're working through stage one, two, and three, but you don't know everything you'd like to know about them before you put them into the market and find out how they really work in the real world. And I think those kinds of sites have turned out to be a very effective way for docs um, working with other docs, um, using that social networking capability to talk to each other um, across really broad groups of, of providers about how the real world really works when it comes to certain medications. And I think um, I appreciate the fact that it makes some people a little nervous, but I think in the grand scheme of things, it's a tremendously powerful tool for a physician to dramatically expand their experience base and their knowledge base about many of the medications that they prescribe. Hey, this is just, you know, one way to keep the conversation going around some of the technology, but there was a recent, I think it was just this weekend in uh, the Boston Globe, which is still being printed, listeners, and uh, they were talking I about... I still subscribe. The, it shows up on my front porch every day. <laughs> Me too. I think I'm the last one on the street, but uh, anyway, the, uh, the the article, you probably saw it, was about that some people have to wait a year to see a physician because it's they're just so busy, and, you know... I'd like your take on that, but I'd also like from the angle, why aren't more physicians using email and, you know, direct contact, especially with patients they already know, to maybe reduce the amount of time that they have to spend physically with the patient? Or is that sort of a naive question? Um, I think there's a couple things going on there. I certainly think one of the issues is just that um, not as much familiarity on the patient side or the physician side with the possibilities of the tool. And um, and I think this is going to be one of those things that ends up being sort of driven by first movers um, who will start to do it. And then, uh, and then as they experience um, how it works and how it feels, um, others will follow behind. But in right. addition to that, Larry, getting back to some of the security issues we talked about before, um, having an ongoing conversation with your uh, provider using... Um, some of the, the online tools that are available because of some of the rules and regs that are required associated with privacy and all the rest can be pretty complicated. Um, I have an online account with the physician group that I use. And, uh, you know, if I don't use it for a while, it automatically, you know, blows up my password and makes me create a new one. And, um, and the process for getting a new password is kind of messy. And um, I just think we've not made that process from a, rules, regulations, requirements, and from a practical application point of view, anywhere near as um, easy to access and use as we've made it in a 
lot of other sectors of our economy. I was over at the um, MIT Lab for Computer Science a few weeks ago, and one of the things they were talking about, at, it houses the World Wide Web Consortium, where they all think about uh, a lot of different things moving forward on the web. And one of them was this uh, cheaper access to health care they were actually discussing. And they used the example of, you know, someday, you know, maybe asking questions for a doctor that might be practicing in India, and you pay a dollar for the advice. Do you think we'd ever get to that, or will the privacy and regulation issues just shut uh, ideas like that down? I think we'll get to that, um, and I think it will be... Um, I don't. I don't think it'll be. I don't think you'll have to go to India, um, right? Necessarily to get that kind of opinion. You might go to Cleveland to the Cleveland Clinic. Or you might go to Rochester to the Mayo Clinic. Um, I mean, the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic and some of these other places already run pretty sophisticated sites that have a ton of information on them um, that can be accessed by a lot of different people and. Uh, and, and some of these folks are very interested in creating what I would call sort of a national brand and potentially a global brand um, out of their out of the success and, and footprint of their of their brick and mortar organization. And uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a lot of people stateside start to pursue that as well. I do know there's tremendous concern um, in the physician community about um, offering too much advice online um, without actually having a chance to sort of see and touch and feel the, the patient who's involved in whatever the questioning is. And I do think that will limit to some extent how far people are willing to go with that sort of thing. You know, you're right. It's because um, when you think about it, the you know, Cleveland Clinic, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is heart. Right, you know, you absolutely. Think of, you think of Farber, the first thing is cancer, you know, Jocelyn, diabetes, that kind of thing. So even going further with those brands probably makes a lot of sense. Hey, um, back to Harvard Pilgrim. You're a leading nonprofit health plan uh, at a time when many nonprofits are feeling pressure to convert to for-profit. Has this been a consideration for you guys, and why or why not? Um, it really hasn't been for a couple reasons. One is uh, it's pretty simple. The regulatory environment in Massachusetts especially would make it really, really difficult to convert. Um, it would take a long time. It would be an incredible distraction, and... Um, and I'm not even sure at the end of the day if we could get the approvals. Um, so, you know, that's just sort of, it's a very small window on a very high ledge that you'd have to climb through to pull it off. The, the second issue is, you know, as long as the plan um, continues to perform operationally and from a, a service point of view and, and financially, um, there's not really a huge uh, interest on our part in, um, in converting. I mean, typically if you're converting, it's basically to raise capital for expansion and investment purposes. And we have a joint venture with United Healthcare that gives us access to their network outside our service area, which is a national network. And they have access to our network for uh, accounts that they sell outside our service area who have a big population here. And for all intents and purposes, that pretty much uh, provides us with um, sort of a national network to sell um, to sell our business off of. And, you know, the big issue would be, do we want to grow into Connecticut? Do we want to grow into Vermont? Do we want to grow into Rhode Island, to these other states that are around us, which is what you'd want to do if, if we converted and then made a capital investment to do so. But generally speaking, we still have plenty of room to grow in the states we operate in um, if we do a good job and, and deliver on our value proposition. 
Hey, you were the Secretary of Health and Human Services under two governors uh, in the past, and we've talked a bit about how, you know, the healthcare industry can use the new information tools. You know, one category that seems way lacking in understanding the new communications landscape is the government, especially state governments. Your thoughts on, on them, and do you think see them moving you know, soon to using more of the, the available social media and, and technology tools? You know, th- this is a really interesting question. I think, the, um, I think there are huge opportunities for the public sector to take advantage of these tools um, if, they, if they can see their way clear to do so for a couple reasons. One is it's a much cheaper way of collecting information about how you're doing and what you're up to. Um, and what your plans are than almost any other way I can think of. Um, and the second is, um, if ever there was an organization who has, you know, a really big constituency base of pretty engaged constituents, it would be um, the public sector and governments, state and local in particular. Um, and yet there just hasn't been the same focus on trying to create that kind of dialogue. And I think a big piece of it comes down to just fear about what, what people would say, what would show up, you know, how would that then get reported in the media, how many problems would that create. If you're, if you're a risk minimizer, okay, then all of this looks incredibly um, scary. And, yeah. um, and you're always going to be the last to land there after everybody else has already gone there and worked out all the bugs and, and everything else. And I think for the most part the public sector tends to pursue risk minimization over opportunity maximization as a as a culture most of the time. Yeah, I agree. Though I, I'm I'm hoping as the the generation that now has grown up on Facebook and MySpace and Twitter and et cetera, which really is a new communication communication paradigm that's open and and transparent, will will start to push these sort of laggard categories into more progressive communication. Yeah, I agree totally with that, and I don't see any reason why um, that won't necessarily be the case down the road. Um, But like I said, it has to go from being sort of leading edge to being just the standard way of doing business before I think you really get a lot of the public sector folks to jump on. Yeah, I agree. Hey, we got a lot of news, um, you know, the last presidential cycle with uh, uh, Governor Romney touting that, you know, Massachusetts had done some innovative things in health care reform. And, of course, now that's one of the biggest items after the economy that's on the Obama administration's plate. Um, can Massachusetts play a role? Has it been a model? And what, how about some of the things that have made Harvard Pilgrim number one? Is there any thoughts from you about, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's happening? Um, well, I think, the, I think the national situation is much harder to compare to, to Massachusetts for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you know, we were, in the, we were looking to, um, to expand coverage and also preserve some financial support that we'd had for a number of years through a federal waiver, that the federal, which was worth like $400 million to the state of Massachusetts, that the federal government was looking to see us return. And so we had a big financial incentive, a positive one, um, to put together a reform plan, expand coverage, and continue to access that $400 million that the feds had been providing to us for a number of years. And so the real focus in Massachusetts was let's expand coverage, preserve the federal funding that we have in place today, and 
we'll worry about the cost question later on. You know, how are we going to actually sustain this over time? The feds have made very clear that they think the cost question is sort of primary um, or at least as important as the coverage question is to what they're trying to accomplish because they've got huge issues with federal deficits and an underfunded Medicare program and an underfunded Medicaid program and all the rest. And, uh, and so I think the nature of their discussion is going to be a lot different than the one we had up here. I do think that um, the president's made pretty clear that he would like to see something happen on this. The House has made pretty clear that they would like to do something. The Senate's made pretty clear they want to do something. The same party controls all three branches. Um, you know, they have about as many of the pieces in place as you can possibly have uh, to move a really complicated issue like what to do with 18% of GDP um, down the reform field. Um, but even with that said, I think it'll be... Um, a difficult task, primarily because they've made pretty clear that cost control has to be as big a, a part of, of what they do on reform as, as the coverage piece. Whereas in Massachusetts, it was really, let's solve the coverage problem, keep our federal reimbursement, and we'll come back and worry about the cost question later. Hey, um, we're winding down. I, we have a lot of marketers, especially from healthcare organizations and pharma companies that listen to the show. I wonder what message you would give them uh, and their CEOs about integrating social media as part of their outbound communication strategy. Um, well, I would say a couple things. The first is um, I think it's a very effective and interesting way to learn what other people are thinking about you and about your products and your services and uh, and your industry. And you shouldn't underestimate that. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of money doing a lot of very scientific um, research work around these types of issues. And I'm not saying people should stop doing that, but I think they should understand that um, even though you end up with a so-called self-selected community of people who participate in social media, it's still one that's going to be fairly highly engaged and and, and involved, and one that can probably tell you a lot about um, how your organization's doing and what you're up to in ways that you might not necessarily see it looking from the inside out. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, there are huge opportunities for particular parts of your, your customer base, your constituent base, your vendor community to engage not just in conversations with you, but also in conversations with each other. Um, with you as the facilitator if you uh, bring them into a social media dialogue. And again, there's a big learning opportunity there where the incremental expense associated with one more voice is basically nothing, um, which we shouldn't forget. And then the third thing I would say is people appreciate um, over the long term folks who give them an opportunity to, to speak their piece and, and engage in the discussion um, over that period of time. And uh, we in the healthcare space as much as anybody, um, have not been very good about recognizing the voice of those we serve and giving it uh, an opportunity to be a larger part of, of our own conversation. And social media creates a huge opportunity to do that. Uh, thanks a lot, Charlie. And one last question I'd like to ask, uh, you know, now and then my, my guests is, uh, it doesn't have to have anything to do with healthcare, but is there a, a site uh, that you've spent time on lately that's particularly interesting or fun or uh, that comes to mind that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I actually think Facebook is a pretty interesting site. <laughs> um, I say that as a, you know, 52-year-old guy, but... Um, 
but I've discovered that there's a lot of people playing on that thing um, who are not college students and not recent college graduates. They may be on there too, but there's a ton of people on that site um, who are in my wheelhouse from an age point of view. And uh, and I learn a fair amount of things about what people are up to and what's going on and what's important to them um, just by tracking what they're talking about. Well, 300 million people can't be wrong. So. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, Charlie Baker, thanks a million. President and CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, one of the leading healthcare providers in the country. Thanks for being our guest today. Happy to do it, Larry. And thanks, everyone in the audience, for listening to today's Market Edge conversation. Tune in again in two weeks at 12 o'clock noon Eastern Time in the United States to webmasterradio.fm. This is Larry Weber. Until then, bye-bye.